Week six, image versus substance. Well, we've been in this study in Revelation, and just a quick recap for everyone. Uh, we've been studying the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation being the idea that Jesus wants to reveal himself through the church. And in order to do that, he has to speak to the church and encourage us in some things we're doing right and correct us in some things we're doing wrong. So John, one of the apostles that was burned alive because they were trying to kill him, because when the government realizes that the king of kings is stronger than what they try to do, they try to take out leaders. So they were trying to take out leaders, and they couldn't kill John, so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. So when he was exiled, they thought they could shut him up, but Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to talk through the one that's living still, and I'm going to give you a dream, and I'm going to give you some things to write, and these letters are going to go to the seven churches uh, in the province of, uh, of, of uh, the Roman province of Asia. So in this image, you've got the seven lampstands with Jesus in the middle of the seven lampstands. And he says the seven lampstands represent the churches. Jesus is in the middle, making sure that all the churches are burning as bright as they possibly can. In order to burn bright, you got some things that you're doing right, but you got some things you got to correct. So let's talk about what you got to correct. The first church was the church of Ephesus. He says you got a lot, a lot of stuff right, but you've fallen out of love with me, and you've fallen out of love with each other. Right? You're doing all the stuff, but if you don't love people doing it, stop doing it, because it ain't worth it. Number two, church of Smyrna. You're persecuted and you're poor, but I got a correction. Stop being afraid and remember who you serve in the midst of your persecution. I think the church at large needs to hear that message. Stop being afraid. And you can see who's afraid by the way they act during the time of uh, epidemic that's not as bad as any other one. Number three, Church of Pergamum. They were loyal in what they called Satan's city, but he says you have tolerated way too much sin. You've tolerated too much perversion of grace. You are preaching a message that, say grace, uh, that says grace allows you to live however the heck you want to live. And that has pretty much infiltrated most of the church of America. It's this fluffy grace message of live how you want because he's paid for your sin. You're going to heaven, so how you live on the earth doesn't matter. That's a grace message. Grace did not buy a way for you to live how you want. Grace purchased a way for you to enter into the Holy of Holies 24-7 because now he is dwelling inside of you, not an external temple. You have become the dwelling place of God. That is what grace purchased for you. Okay? See, now, now y'all y'all good. Okay. Number four, last week, the church of Thyatira. He said, y'all doing good in a few areas. You're increasing in love, faith, service, and patience. But you've allowed the Jezebel spirit in the church. You have permitted a false prophet and teacher. We talked about own the problem. I see so many churches praying away the Jezebel spirit or the Python spirit or a demonic spirit getting in the church. But Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not blaming the spirit for getting in because demons and Satan, they are not the gatekeepers of the church. My people are the gatekeepers in the church. And if a spirit got in, it's because you allowed it. 
And you allowed it based off of your compromise. And you've allowed it because you hadn't been watching properly. Because a lot of churches love to put in leadership way too quick because they want to keep the people, they want to grow the numbers instead of being slow to lay hands on as we're taught, as we're taught in the book of Timothy. Perhaps that's why it took three years for Jesus to raise up disciples to put them to the plow of apostleship. Perhaps that's why when Paul got delivered on the road to Damascus, he had to sit up under teaching for 20 years before he ever started his ministry. We forget about that part. We think Paul started to see and then he started to preach. No, he had to be fathered for 20 some odd years before he started to become what we see today. But what we love to do in the church is we love to just throw people into position. And that's why half the church is uh, the people are leaning in the church and they got no business leading and spirits are infiltrating and we have false messages being preached. So now we come to the fifth church. Y'all ready? I'm excited. Today we begin the fifth letter of the fifth church. Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. Everyone say Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The city of Sardis at this time has seen its best days and it started to decline. But make no mistake, Sardis was a very, very wealthy city. Sardis was at this junction of a lot of crossroads and trade routes, so it made it a place where it was very easy to become very profitable. Sardis was a city well known for its luxury. It was a place where it was very easy to make money. It was like the sin city of the Roman province of Asia. It was basically like Vegas, like old Vegas up in Asia. Like not new Vegas, like old Vegas, like sin city Vegas, right? Not that Vegas is that great now, but... Maybe a little more family friendly, but it it was Sin City up in the day. It was known for luxury, easy money, and it was really known for loose morality. They had an elaborate temple they built for this goddess, Cybele. Cybele was the mistress of wild nature. She was known as the goddess of fertility, and they worshipped her for protection of war. So in this worship of this goddess Cybele, because they wanted uh, the, 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 the city to expand, they worshiped the fertility god by worship of sexual acts. So the entire city was infiltrated with all of this sexual impurity, all of this loose morality. They didn't depend on the true God to empower them with the ability to stand their ground and protect the walls. They worshiped this false god for protection. Many people do that today. They don't believe in, in, in Yahweh. They don't worship God the Father and say, we are believing in your heads of protection by walking in your law and your ways. They ask for other ways to protect. They look into all these different card readers and psychic readers, and they'll walk around and, and do all these different you know, acts around their house. God, give me protection on my house. They'll put dream catchers up to protect them in their sleep and all this kind of stuff. And God's like, I've got you. We do all this stuff for all this copying of all this other forms of protection when God says, let me take care of your mind. 
Let me take care of everything that I need to take care of. But they, they knew that they needed to be protected, but they put all of their trust in these false idols. And their whole city was based off of all this false worship. Well, this, there was a combination of luxury and sexual perversion that made Sardis known as this place of pleasure. There was extreme lack of discipline in Sardis. In fact, Sardis was so bad that the pagans, they, they even regarded Sardis as too sinful for them. It wasn't even just Christians. It wasn't even just Jewish culture. It was like even the pagans who worshiped false gods, they were like, nah, that place is too, too corrupt for us. That's how bad Sardis was. It was totally corrupt and a lack in discipline. There's even stories where Sardis had many, many times where the enemy came in and conquered the city because the soldiers relied so much on this idea of the Cybele God that they have one job as a soldier. In order to protect the city back in those days, you were called to be a watchman on the wall. And the soldiers would get on the wall and they would watch out for the enemy. They trusted their system of their city so much that they didn't watch for the enemy. They relied on their city. They relied on what they built, and they got lazy. And because they got lazy, because they weren't disciplined, because they weren't diligent, the enemy would come in and take over whatever he wanted to take over. And the lack, excuse me, and a lack of diligence is never rewarded. A lack of diligence, when you are called to be a watchman on the wall, is never rewarded. Hebrews 11.6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he, comes, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who what? diligently seek him. Not those who casually seek him, not those who seek him when it meets their own needs, but those who take it serious and put diligently seeking him as a priority. If you are not diligent in seeking him, keeping your eyes on him intentionally in all you do, it is so easy for your eyes to shift toward other things, which is why you let your guard down. The enemy gets in your heart, and that's why the Bible says out of your heart flows the issues of life. Because if you don't keep your eyes focused on a diligent seeking on God, your eyes can focus easily on anything that might catch. And then because you are no longer watching the guard of your temple, the enemy gets in, gives you a false desire. You come into agreement with the desire and then issues spring out of your heart because your heart is the most deceiving thing you have. Because it comes into agreement when you're not diligently seeking God and keeping watch over the walls of your temple. Yes, sir. You all right? I know. I read a passage Wednesday night, and I think it's fitting for this. Psalm chapter 1, 2 through 3 says this. But they that delight in the law of the Lord, delight, I get sick and tired of believers talking about, well, grace abolishes the law. 
if you believe in God, you shouldn't be looking as for excuses to get the law out of your wants and desires. You should be taking the light in it, not looking for excuses as to get out of it. Well, Jesus saved me, and there's grace in Jesus, and I don't have to abide by the law. Why are you looking for reasons to not adhere to it? Take delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. That's called diligently seeking. They, are they those that take delight in law, not because it saves you. The law never saved anyone. If that was the case, Pharisees would be good to go because they did good in law. Jesus saved, law could not. But the law does do something. <clears throat> they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Here comes the problem with the church. What the church does is we come up with, re with excuses as to why we stop bearing fruit. Because if you've ever been a part of church at all, you've heard this before. I'm entering into a season. And this is a season where it's just not productive. What does the scripture say? Those that delight in the law of God are like a tree that in the natural, it may not supposed to produce leaves in the winter and maybe it's supposed to drop off in the fall. But if you live according to a supernatural law of heaven and you delight and meditate and seek him, no matter what season you're in, you are able to produce because your roots are no longer in the ground, your roots are upside down from heaven. Therefore, no matter what season you're in, you can produce. Well, we're just in this season where the church is called not to produce and we need to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean you can't produce. Resting doesn't mean you can't produce. Jesus was resting and his disciples fell asleep and in his state of rest, he had to produce a fruit of discipleship calling them to say, why are you asleep? In the three years of Jesus' ministry, did you ever see a time where Jesus couldn't produce because it was a season of being unproductive? Do you really think that COVID is a time for the church to enter into a season of not producing? But how many places called houses of worship are in what they call seasons of unproductivity? And if we would seek and meditate on God day and night and take the light in his law, he says, no matter what season you go through, you can produce because you are no longer in the rhythms of natural. You are in the rhythm of Thy kingdom come and my will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And as it is in heaven is not dependent on seasons that you walk through based off of your stuff. So you seek me and you meditate on me and you be diligent to wait on me and watch on me. And you don't have to worry about seasons. 
Well, I'm in a season where relationships are lacking and friendships are lacking and my finances are at this and I don't have a job and COVID won't let me do this and I'm going through that. Are you going to let the environments dictate you or are you going to dictate how you produce in an environment? There's been prophetic words released about an entrepreneurial spirit. COVID shut down everyone and everyone's, I've got to depend on a $2,000 check. Well, God says, hold up. You have created dependency on a government check. I'm not speaking against the check. Don't hear me wrong. I ain't got one yet, but that's cool. Ever. And I'm good with that because y'all can pay your taxes on it. But joke. He says, you're depending on a handout. But in the middle of not producing... How about you go produce something and not depend on the season of what they want to give you? Think about what this house did last year. Shut down the house and every pastor was freaking out about no one's going to tithe. So out of a step of faith, we took out loan after loan, redid the place, Open up Father's Day, and, and by the end of the year, we doubled tithe and offering, and, and we had no debt. Because we don't base fruit off of a season of shutdown. Right? Diligently seat me. And in the middle of this city of loose living and this lack of discipline and no seeking, God has this church that he calls to be disciplined in him. And he starts addressing this church, and he says, let me remind you of my character. He says, I am, I have the seven, let me read it again, <clears throat> the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. My character is the sevenfold spirit of God, and I hold the seven stars. Jesus, the number seven in this culture is, means completeness and perfection. Jesus says, my character is that I hold the completeness and the fullness of the Spirit of God. So when I speak to you about what I'm about to talk about, I want to remind you that I'm speaking in completeness, fullness, and and perfection. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 2 a few weeks ago, we talked about he describes what the sevenfold spirit of God is. It's godly wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. So what, he says, whatever, whatever I'm about to say to all of you, all of that is in my words. And then in Revelation 1.20, it says that the seven stars are the, the seven, the angels of the seven churches, the messengers to the seven churches. So he says, what I'm about to say is not just for one. What I'm about to say is for the complete thing of the church. So for any theologian that says this was just for the church in Asia, that's called false teaching. This is for the whole deal. This is for anyone with ears to hear. This is for anyone who's ever going to read this word. Jesus says, I know all the things you do and you've got a reputation, Sardis, for being alive. The church in Sardis had a reputation 
an image that many churches have today of being alive. We meet every Sunday. We've got a great small group structure. We've got giving. We're doing outreach. Right? We have potluck Sunday. Not us. I'm talking about third person talking right now. We, we do the church thing. We meet every night of the week. That's what the church, we have an image of being alive. We're doing. We're doing a lot of stuff. We've got a building. We've got a website. We've got great social media posts. I heard a great speaker the other day saying, it's a sad day when the church is measuring growth by social media engagement. And it's, we, and it's funny, and everyone's laughing, but I, I can direct you to YouTube channels where they devote hours and hours of teasing on how to grow your church through social media. To me, that's an issue. <clears throat> he says, you've all got signs of life. I imagine Jesus talking to all the churches I'm thinking of right now in Savannah. You've all got signs of life. Y'all doing all the stuff. You've got revivals. You've got meetings. You're all doing great stuff. Then he says, but you're dead. You've got the image, but no substance. You look alive, but you're dead. You see, what I find interesting in this letter to the church is that Jesus didn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against any persecution. He didn't tell them to, 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 to correct any false doctrine. He didn't tell them about spirits in the church. He didn't tell them that, that they were being afraid. He didn't correct anything. He just said one thing. Y'all look alive, but you're dead. Why? Because a dead body is losing the battle and the enemy sees no threat and therefore does not engage in a war. The church in Sardis was doing a lot of stuff and it looked alive, but it posed no significant threat to Satan's domain in Sardis. Therefore, they had no pushback from the enemy. And if you're a house of God, individually, because you're all a house of God, you're a temple of God, and a corporate house of God, and you're not having any sort of spiritual warfare in your life, it's time to wake up and realize you may look alive. But you may be, in fact, dead. Because if you pose no threat to the enemy, he's going to let you stay right where you are. Amen. And it's funny because when I was preparing this message, Thursday, I had about four hours of straight, intense warfare that had me in about three hours of tears that I've told hardly anyone about. But you know what? I got, I got so encouraged because I, I asked for confirmation and that goes back to my theory that God's sarcastic. Because I was like, God, am I doing the right thing? Warfare, warfare coming against me. Someone gave me a word in January that scoffers are going to come against you soon. I got a word in December that the next three months you're going to go through hell and people gonna, some people are going to leave your church. Thursday, it was like boom, 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 boom. And I was just beat up. And it was, it was all false claims and false this, and God was like, the enemy's coming against you. 
Good job, boy. Because if I pose no threat, the enemy would see no reason to come against this house. If you, it showed me something about the people because people have been talking to me about the warfare they're going through. This is coming through about my memory. This is coming through about this old relationship. This came out of nowhere. That's coming out of nowhere. The enemy's coming against here. Because the people are growing in this house and the enemy is starting to shake in his boots. The enemy will not engage in a battle with something that he is not worried about. And what Jesus is saying to Sardis, he's like, y'all ain't got nothing coming against you. You're doing a lot of stuff, but you're dead. That's why you ain't going through any battles. Wake up. And I see so many churches that look alive, but I wonder, are they going through any sort of engagement? And I think sometimes what people call spiritual battles are actually just convictions. There's a big difference in the enemy coming against you and the God trying to wake you up. This was the perfect model of an ineffective church. The image was alive, but their substance was dead. Sardis wasn't changing. Nothing was happening. Isaiah 54, 17 says this. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. Look at what it says. Weapons will turn against the church. Voices will be raised to accuse you. Here's the promise. The weapons won't succeed, and the voices will be silenced. But we read it wrong. We read it, oh, we're never going to experience warfare. No, that's not what it says. Weapons will come, voices will be raised, but they will not win the battles. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. Right? Weapons will turn, voices will be raised, but they will not succeed, and they will be silenced. So if we're not seeing the try, we have to wonder if we're posing a threat to the territory of the enemy. That's why God says, go therefore and occupy. What does occupy mean? You ever heard, see, you just need, you need, you need to be pastoring. What, what does the word occupy mean? <laughs> <laughs> well then take away pastor apostolic what does the word occupy it's a military term have you ever heard of the term God's already won the war and we're fighting battles that's where occupy comes in God says I've won the land now your job is to battle in occupying what I have already won for you the enemy is in an area that I've won for you. You don't have to fight a war. You go occupy where the defeated thing still stands. Go occupy Savannah. Occupy your home. Occupy your work environment. 
There's no war to fight, but there are battles to go through and occupy the area. So if you have, are called to go occupy, that means weapons are going to be formed and voices are going to raise to say, you're not allowed here. But they cannot win because you are called to occupy something that's already been won. But if you're not moving forward to occupy, then you're not posing a threat into the areas that they're still residing in that they have no right to reside in. That's why the enemy has no authority because they have no rights. They have no substance. They've got the image. That's why everyone loves to meet on the weekend. We're going to meet for church and we're going to praise God with some good music and we're going to take communion and we're going to listen to a good message and then we're going to go home and we're going to have our good Sunday stuff and then we're going to go through our week and we're not going to represent a bit of them because grace covers all. You know what he says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 2? After he says you're dead, he says wake up and strengthen what little remains. He doesn't even say try to get woke with those that are dead. He says, find the ones that remain and strengthen them. Again, this is not letters to the lost. Because I believe before we go out and get them, we got to make sure that we're bringing them into something that ain't corrupted and evil and messed up and jacked up. Because half the time we go get the lost, bring them in church, and they leave worse than they were. Because they never want to come back to what this represents because half the time it ain't God. Is that too much? Good. Strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. The spiritual condition of Sardis is weak. The city, remember, has been conquered twice before this because the watchmen were not on the walls diligently taking watch. The presence of works is not enough. It's the substance of what you're doing. If you're doing it just to do, that's image without substance. The, the what you do should be a flow of a relationship. Because when you're in a relationship, it's I'm doing as a response of the relationship I'm in. Right? So God says, I love you. And then this is what we do. We either just do stuff because we know we, he loves us. And we want to put this illusion, this mask of, well, he better make sure he thinks I love him too. So I'm going to come to church and I'm going to you know, read a salvation card and I'm going to get baptized and I'm going to say I believe and I'm going to do all this stuff. But then no one sees your substance. They just see an image and they call you a, a, one of those false Christians. Or, you know, you know one of those, those you, know, you know, oh, you, 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 a, you, a, you a disciple. Yeah, I, I see what you a disciple of, right? 
Relationship says, I talk and I speak and I have a friendship with the one who loves me and I do based off of an assignment that he has spoken to me in that relationship. So I don't do as a check the box. I do out of a flow of a conversation. And because I'm in love as a bride with my groom, we are the bride of Christ and he is the bridegroom, I'm going to honor my in love with an action from a flow of relationship. He says, you're doing it just doing it out of relationship. He says, but where is the substance of that image? Because without substance, it's dead, and it's not doing anything. And Satan loves it because you think you're actually doing something. The Bible talks about it as light, darkness that looks like light is darker than any form of darkness. You're, you're doing things that you think that are godly, but you're walking in complete ignorance that you're not doing anything. And because you think you're doing great things, you'll never open your eyes to the fact that you're not doing a thing. And Satan's pleased with it. Because you call yourself the people of God. Think about it. Think about the deception in the garden. Oh no, God ain't going to be mad at you. You're good. It there wasn't one conversation of the serpent saying, worship me and build a throne to the snake. Not one. Like, oh, yeah, you, you can eat of this fruit. You ain't going to die. You're fine. You're good, church. You can eat of this knowledge. You can marry homosexuals. You can employ staff who don't agree with the Bible. You can, you can do anything, church. You can change the theology of the Bible to be relevant to the day. You can vote for any man for president because, because the political place isn't, that, that's a different thing than the religious realm. We've got to separate church and state. Even though I know Jesus said that the government's on the shoulders, but that's a different type of thing. Do you see what the enemy's doing? He's convincing people that separate, 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 separate. And now Christians are arguing on behalf of the enemy thinking they're doing the right thing. Are our eyes opening? Hmm. Proverbs 8, 32 to 36. And so, children, listen to me. For all who follow my ways are joyful. What did the Psalm scripture say? Those who follow my law, who delight in my law, are like trees that produce fruit all the time. What is joy? A fruit of the Spirit. Well, I just lost my joy. I don't know how to get, get planted. I don't know how to get my joy back. Well, maybe you should look to what part of the law you're not honoring. Because if you take the light in it, you'll produce fruit. I don't know how to get patience. That's just not who I am. 
Well, the reason God redeemed you was to give you a new name so that you could forget about who you were and walk into who you actually are. I get sick and tired of Christians saying that. That's just not who I am. Exactly. He didn't like who you were, so he redeemed you and gave you a new name, and you won't know that name until you enter into the courts of heaven. So in Revelation chapter 2, he'll give you a white stone engraved with a name that you do not know. I can't wait to find out that name. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me watching for, you know what your name is sometimes? Addict. Forgotten. Unloved. You know what your name is sometimes? Worthless. That's not your name. You know what your name is sometimes? Impatient. Introverted. God calls us to gather together and fall in love with each other, and we use introvert as a reason to not gather. That's not your name. That's the world's reasoning to get you out of the fold. Okay. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me, watching for me daily at my gates. What was the problem with Sardis? They weren't watching They weren't being diligent. They weren't being watchmen. He says, watch for me daily at my gates, waiting for me outside my home. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love, all who hate me love death. Watch for me daily at my gates. If you miss me, you injure yourselves. If you follow me, you're joyful and you come alive. But you cannot find life if you're not watching daily and if you're not diligent. If you're not watching daily, you can let anything in. And in that moment, he says, you love death more than you love life. And that should be a wake-up call because there's many areas in your life probably that you've embraced death more than life. And he says, you love that. And you know what the sad thing is? We hear that message. But there's so many people that will walk away and not do a thing about it. And you prove Jesus' point. You love death more than you love me. Now, I'm not saying you're going to walk away totally transformed in a moment. But there's got to be at least an acknowledgement of, Lord, teach me how to walk in this path and out of death. Some people will be transformed in a moment. Sometimes it's a matter of saying, Lord, here it is. But sometimes it's a matter of, Lord, I'm dead here. Show me step one. And then be obedient in step one so that you can walk into step two. But many of us won't be obedient in step one because we love death. And sometimes step one is the hardest step, and then step two through 99 is really easy. Because step one is the hurdle, and then step two through 99 is downhill. Sometimes you get so busy at looking like you're seeking to mask the fact that nothing about you is seeking, and you're so easily moved by whatever catches your eye. It says, diligently seek me. And then he says in verse 3, go back to what you heard and what you believed at first. Because that's the question, right? Well, how, how do I get back there? He says, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. 
Repent. Turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I'll come to you suddenly as an unexpected as a thief. How do I strengthen what remains? When I've been beat up, when all hope is lost, when I've forgotten how to stand, how do I remain watchful? Go back to what you heard at first and what you believed at first. Do you remember when you heard about how great he was at first? He says, go back to that. And God showed me something more than that. Because I, I believe there's something deeper, there's a stronghold that many people are in, and it causes them not to go back to something so easy. Because it seems so easy. Go back and remember what it was like when you first heard about him. But there's a stronghold as to why it's so easy to just remember that. You want to know what it is? They talk about it in Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. <clears throat> Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you did not think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in who you believe. Get back to the place of not receiving a message as words from a man but truth breathed from an expression of God. Because when you first heard truth, you weren't, it's just a man talking. It was something is speaking to me through the words of that vessel. But what people do in church is when you hear a message, which we should hold the teacher accountable, that's scripture. But at some point, you've got to realize this is not Kyle talking right now. This is the voice of God giving instruction. And I've got to remember what it was like when I first heard about how great he is so that when I'm getting the gut punch, it's not an arrogant preacher. It's a father in love with his children trying to lead them into a new place. He says, remember to not think of this as merely words from man. But remember what it was like when you first heard it when you were so childlike and you just took it as the word of God. And if that's not enough for you, this is a scripture that a lot of people skip over and people don't like. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Now, unfortunately, a lot of spiritual leaders abuse that. But look at what it says. Oh, do what they, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this one. Do what they say. <laughs> Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not sorrow. Let me love the fact that I love you. Don't give me a reason to hate what I do, y'all. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Don't get mad when you get truth and exalt your opinion above the truth simply because you viewed it as man's opinion. Because this is what the church loves to do. When a man who is not perfect 
gives you a truth and you don't like it, some people will start searching out what has he got wrong? Or what does, well, he's arrogant. Or he's a smart behind. Or he don't do this right. Or he don't do that right. Or did you hear about what he did 10 years ago? Or this and this and that. But think about what the scripture says. Throw it up there again. Look at what it says. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. No matter what I'm still getting right, I have given my life over to make sure that you never walk in to the issues that I've been in or the issues that I'm still dealing with or the issues that I know about. We're called to father people. What does a mom or dad do? I want to raise my son or daughter to never deal with the issues that I messed up in. You want a spiritual leader to be your father. What does a father do? I've messed up. I'm going to teach you to do things, obey the words I'm giving you, so you don't do what I've done. And then when you hear those words, people look at preachers and they call them what? Hypocrites. No, they're fathers. That's why Paul was very transparent. I've got thorns on my side. Keep it there to keep me humble. Can you imagine Paul's preaching and people looking at Paul? Yeah, 10 years ago, you murdering people. But I don't, I don't remember that recorded in Scripture. Because they were hearing the word of God. And that's all they cared about. But now we try to pick apart everything because we don't, we, we, we don't, we don't want to walk into the ways of God. We want to exalt our opinion above what we look at as man's opinion instead of the truth. And we try to make an immovable God movable. This is never to be updated. This doesn't move with the times. There's nothing about this that needs to be tweaked. It's perfect. And then he says in Revelation 3.3 that we just read, he says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you suddenly as an unexpected, as a thief. Now, many people read that as a rapture reference. But I'm going to take it in a different direction. I will come at you unexpected as a thief. He just talked about waking up and strengthening who you are and your faith. Image versus substance. This is what the church does. We come together and we'll pray for hours. And then we'll pray for someone for healing. So if Josh has got needs to be healed, we'll sit here and we'll pray, Lord, let him be healed of all of his junk and all of his imperfections and just everything that makes Josh a horrible person and all the disease up in him and all of his pride and all of his lying and all of the horrible things about Josh. And <laughs> no, we'll pray for healing. And then if he actually gets healed, 
we get surprised. Oh my gosh, he got healed. Because we'll have the image of let's pray. But if we don't have the substance of things hoped for, when the thief, when Jesus comes and takes the issue, it looks like a thief coming suddenly. Because we didn't expect God to take the disease. So it looks like a thief coming all of a sudden. And we get surprised and look at it as a thief. Coming unexpected. Because we don't come into the presence of God with what? Expectation. Many Christians got surprised that Trump was acquitted. You doubting your prayers? I'm guilty of it. Over this past two months, I can name about 30 people who have come into this house. And they are all coming for the same reason. Leaving large churches seeking unfiltered truth. And I'm like, well, why'd I come in here? And yet, when we go out to dinner, everyone jokes around about, like, well, there's a reason we call Relentless, you know, and they talk about boldness. And everyone that knows me, I'm very bold up here, but I'm not exactly always thinking I'm it. I don't think I'm it. Every time I leave with my message, I usually go to a few people. Was that okay? <laughs> and y'all get sick of it. Because I do rely on God. This isn't about I think I'm a great preacher. I don't. But you know what this, this has been showing me? God's like, you've been seeking me for years. I've been growing you in your gift. When are, when are you going to realize that I'm bringing people because you haven't made it about you? Why are you surprised by that, Kyle? And then, on top of that, you're raising up people with a heart for them to surpass you. Why are you surprised that I'm bringing them to you? Where's your substance, boy? Where's your substance, church? Why are you surprised that things are being mended? That provision is being passed down. And then Jesus takes a shift. Is this okay? There, there it is. <laughs> I'll take a sip of my medicine ball. No substance. Verse 4. <laughs> Just kidding. Yet, yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says, in this town of no discipline, there are still a few who have not compromised. Most of the church looks alive, but they're dead. But there's a few of you, you're alive. 
In other words, he says, there's a remnant. There's a small amount of believers who are worthy to walk with me in a day of complete moral corruption. Why do you think we're in a day where America especially is in a day of absolute corruption and people are leaving churches of thousands to go to churches of tens and twenties? Because there's a remnant of people who are tired of the compromise and they're tired of being culturally relevant and they're tired of stroking the backs of people who just want to come in to get encouraged in their sin. They actually want to walk in garments of light and become the spotless bride. To put pride down and say, Lord, correct me. Straighten me. Lord, show me. I'm tired of building a business. I want to build your house. And I want your house to look immaculate because you're too good to compromise the building of it. What's the house? The people. Because we're good at the image, right? But the substance, we compromise. He says, they have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me in white. It was a perfect analogy because in this day, pagans didn't even worship with their gods with dirty clothes. They came in with clean clothes. And we always talk about white being the color of purity. But did you know that for the Romans, white was a color of triumph? So he says, white, to walk with me in white clothes, being clothed in white is the mark of a believer's triumph in a walk with Jesus. You're not given in a compromise. You're in a close, intimate walk. Matthew 5, 8 says, I'm getting close. What bliss you experience when your heart is pure, for then your eyes will open to see more and more of God. In order for a heart to be pure, it has to be emptied of agreement with immorality. God, I want to walk with you. I want to see more of you. Okay. Stop letting your desires of your heart coming into agreement with all this immorality in the world and, justing, and justifying it based off of your wants and your desires. I've plainly told you I want them replaced with mine. Yeah, but I'm losing friends and I'm losing this. But you, you say that you're okay with me being your best friend. So why, if I supply your every need, why are you throwing me away for every need that you're grabbing by your own merit? Revelation 3, 5, verse 5. says, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. I'm about to give you some tools right here. I have had some, some, they call themselves theologians, come against me. And I've been studying, trying to figure out what's the debunk, if you will. What is the truth I can show them? So I'm about to give you some truth if you ever have to go into this conversation that God showed me the other day. There is this, these people that are called Calvinists. You ever heard of them? 
they have the one of their ideas based off of a passage in Romans. It says that there is an elect that God has predecided that they go to heaven, and everyone else is, for lack of better terms, they screwed. Okay. It's, yes, all right. This is that kind of church. And that grieves my heart. Because what about everyone else? And in the, in the chapter of Romans, it says that there's an elect that go to heaven. So I've been fi- trying to figure out what is, what is the answer. God showed it to me in this, in this message. You want to know what the answer is? Check this out. Let me read verse 5 again. All who are victorious will be clothed in what? Those who walk with God have a certain kind of what? Clothing. A certain kind of covering. When Adam and Eve sinned and they realized they were naked, they tried to cover themselves. What did they try to cover themselves with? Fig leaves. When God came, when they came before God, after a conversation, God said, I've got to give you necessary covering, worthy covering. So he said, fig leaves won't do it. Let me give you proper covering. So he, he made them tunics of skin. How do you get skin from an animal? You have to kill it. You have to do what? You have to sacrifice it. How do you cover sin? You have to do what? A sacrifice. That's why Jesus was the Lamb of God. He had to be what? Sacrificed. So there had to be a proper covering. Okay? Well, there's a parable that Jesus teaches, and he never really explains much of the parable. Because the reason we have parables is Jesus says, Parables are for the ones that go to churches of thousands and thousands who just want to be puffed up. But the ones, the remnant, y'all going to get it because you're seeking me. So listen to this parable. This is the answer to the elect. This is so good. Matthew 22, 11 through 14. <clears throat> the king has had this wedding and he's, he's, he has just invited all these people in the streets to come in. Because no one has came to the wedding feast. Okay? <clears throat> so at the end of the parable, verse 11, he says, When the king came in to meet the guest, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing what? Proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, How is it that you're here without wedding clothes? The man had no reply. And then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and his feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Everyone got called to the wedding feast. Everyone got called inside to the house, the king's house. Everyone got an invitation into the house of God. Many are called, but few are chosen. Few are elect. 
But it wasn't God, it wasn't the king, it wasn't the owner of the house that decided who was elect. What decided who was elect? If they came wearing the proper clothes. And what's happened in the church is that many have been called. Jesus even says, many will call upon my name, but I'll say to them, I never knew you. Verse 5 says, those who are clothed in white, I will write your name down. Because many have come into my house and many have tried to sit at my table, but my elect are those who came wearing the right clothes. You call yourself a believer, you call yourself a son or daughter of God, but those who truly know my name, they don't come with soiled clothing. I'm looking for my pure and spotless bride. You wear clothing of pure and righteous living. You don't compromise based off of what the world tells you. You don't compromise based off of a theology where you can live loosely and like you want, like the church at Sardis. You come and you sacrifice everything of yourself, showing me that you want all of me and nothing less. The elect are the people who wear their clothes of purity and white and say, God, I'm walking with you in everything. That's the elect. It's your own decision, not his does that help anyone? And then he says in verse 6, anyone with ears to ear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Church, we cannot be a place that looks alive but has the substance of a dead thing. We've got to be the church that is living to see people come alive in Christ. A church with substance. I'll close with these two verses because I think it's so good. I hope this has been good today. Titus chapter 1, 15 through 16. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God. But they deny him by the way they live. They wear the wrong clothes. They are detestable, disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. They, the image of doing good is worthless because they live a different way. They do good with soiled clothes. They have a great image with no what? Substance. We are not to be a people that deny him by the way we live. We are to be a people that people know by the way we live, the substance of our life, that we know him. Let's be that people, more obsessed with our substance than our image, and reveal him to the world. Amen.